Welcome back to GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. If you've been following social justice issues for a while, you're probably familiar with the term intersectionality, which refers to how different forms of social identity, such as gender, age, ethnicity, and social class, affect the way we experience the world around us. But what does that have to do with climate and the environment, I hear you ask? There is a growing movement that seeks to recognize how various forms of oppression, for instance, being poor, female, from an ethnic minority, or a combination of those factors, can make us more vulnerable to the effects of climate change and other environmental hazards. So in today's episode, we're chatting with one of the leading activists in this movement, Isaias Hernandez, founder of Queer Brown Vegan and the council member of Intersectional Environmentalist. Here's what he had to tell us. Welcome everyone, and I'm happy to have you all here. My name is Irini, and on behalf of the Youth in Landscapes Initiative, I welcome you to our second GLF Live. Um, we are very happy to teaming up again with the Global Landscapes Forum to have this GLF Lives episode, the youth-led GLF Lives episodes, um, where we are going to meet and discuss with young people from all around the world on topics that are interesting to them, on projects that they are working on and on dreams that they have. Uh, so today um, we are going to touch upon intersectional environmentalism. On the past few years we have seen the young people taking on the streets um, to... Let me invite on stage, I'm so sorry, let me first invite on stage uh, our guest. This. Okay, I think I managed. Uh, so. The past, hello, Isaias. Hello, how are you? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you perfectly. Dude, we are so happy to have you here. Yeah. So, this is Isaias Hernandez, our environmental educator and the person behind Queer Brown Vegan. And we are going to discuss today with him that we are very grateful to have on board about intersectional environmentalism. As I was saying, um, we have seen the young people these past few years really taking the lead and getting on the streets to demand climate justice, to talk about biodiversity loss, animal liberation. Um, But we all need to step back and reflect on what it means to demand environmental justice and for who are we demanding environmental justice. And that's why we thought that you are the best person to, to discuss about it and shed light on intersectional environmentalism. So welcome on board. Thank you. Um, would you like to share with us some bits about you and also how you are in general? How is the situation there with COVID? How is the situation where you live? And how are you in general? Yeah, thank you so much. So I'm right now based in Los Angeles. And so we just experienced yesterday the most intense heat wave. It was like 118 degrees Fahrenheit. I think that's about 40 degrees plus uh, Celsius. And so, you know, it was the most devastating thing that I've ever seen. But not only that is that um, in Los Angeles, we have a lot of smog pollution and a lot of carcinogens are burning up right now because of the plastics and wildfires. And so Right now, we're dealing with heat waves plus uh, pollution in the air. And so it's very unbearable and very unhealthy for a lot of communities. And so um, that's really the main thing that's been happening right now. Um, if There's an organization I'm working with, Water Drop LA, to get the mutual aid funds. And so that's really fun to do, but also like really important to um, advocate for. Um, other than that, I, yeah, like I guess like my passion for environmentalism grew up is that I grew up in a community that was affected by environmental injustices. And so 
for me growing up, I always had these questions of like, why is this happening? What is this? What does this mean? And so I never really understood how climate change really interconnected to my own community. It was often seen as a bit silo thing of like, oh, this exists somewhere else in the world, but not with us. And so that's what really stemmed my curiosity to become an environmental educator, because I always thought that one, I never had any environmental educators that looked like me to someone that's queer. Like I never really understood like who, how my identity plays a role in the environmental movement. And three is like how I'm able to really navigate myself in this movement, but also be a supporter for others around me, not just a leader in that sense. And so um, as an educator myself, I really believe that knowledge should never be privatized. It should be obviously uh, public access for people. And so one of the reasons why Queerbound Vegan focuses more on just environmental topics is just that it wants to highlight the introductions of these topics to people to give them that facets of interest if they are intrigued by like whatever sector of environmentalism instead of just thinking it's solely focused on conservation. Wow, that's that's very inspiring. I really, really like what you said about knowledge that it needs to be shared because this is exactly what we also believe in GLF as a knowledge-led platform that mm -hmm. knowledge should be should be a commons, it should belong to everyone and you should all have access to that. So I'm a very big fan of your of your work, of the way you present your um the the, the, the words that sound like maybe weird or or hard on the first sight, but then you explain them really nicely on your on your Instagram account, mm -hmm. which is called Queer Brown Vegan. Would you like to walk me through that name? I, I uh, you just said that your you you kind of associate now your identity with environmentalism. But what does it mean for you to associate your your identity with it? Yeah, I think for most modern environmentalists studying in the West. You know, learning about queer ecology or queer ecological practices is often not talked about. And the major I took for environmental science at school, it was never even mentioned. It was only until I actually took a class outside or like a friend had told me about queer ecology, then I realized why this wasn't being incorporated. And so then I realized how Western environmentalism has erased a lot of queer voices from this movement. Um, most especially um, BIPOC individuals that are um, ancestral indigenous folks in their respective regions. And so part of that to me is erasure, cultural erasure, and also the memory loss of what is not there. And so when we fail to include those types of voices, we're failing to also incorporate earthly practices that are obviously from queer perspectives. And so I myself as a queer individual want to make sure that I not only recognize these terms, but also delve deeper in my environmental ethics and values of who exactly were these leaders and who what they stood for and what certain locations meant to them. Because I think most often not in conservation movements, we think about wildlife parks and how they're pristine to these white men. But what about to queer ancestors? What did these environments mean to them? What did these locations mean to them? And if so, if we, think, if we see environments or geography around us, like what, what, what does this mean to them? Especially since we enter this space as new beings, how do we interact with this space? Okay, this is, this is really, really inspiring to listen to. And especially for me, for example, as a white person, these are things that sometimes uh, not only I'm not being taught, but I also struggle to identify with and that's why it's so important to have like people of color in this space to have indigenous people in this space to kind of unlearn and relearn the things we think we know about mm -hmm. environmentalism 
Um, I would like to now talk a little bit more about um, your, your identity as an educator, your identity as an environmental educator. As I said, I find it really fascinating how you decided to say, okay, there is a space that nobody talks about those things and I'm going to occupy Instagram with these little colorful blocks um, and people, maybe they're going to associate with it. They may be going to get inspired by it. So what were your, what was your incentive behind it? And did you, was it something that came out of just your mind or were you taught about this as an as an educational tool? Are there other educational tools out there? And what would you like to, to do in the future as an environmental educator? Yeah, no, definitely. I think in college, I was already out then, but when research spaces or academic spaces, I was more afraid to show who I was to my educators or researchers, mainly because of homophobia being rampant and also racism in those universities is, is, is real. And so part of that was thinking, okay, I maybe I'll be discriminated by race, but I don't want you know, maybe to be discouraged or even be out of this research position that I want to do because of my identity. And so I realized after I graduated college that why I was hiding my identity within those spaces. And so then I realized how it upholds white supremacy in a sense of like, you're not normal, the, your identity is should not be included in this work. And so I myself then realized this is not who I wanted to be. And I wanted to be very authentic and vulnerable of who I was. And so eventually I realized as I got older, that this, that who I wanted to be to really showcase my true identity. So others don't need to feel ashamed of their identities in however way that they are. And so that kind of stemmed my work. And so when I designed Queer Valley Vegan, it wasn't because the color coding thing wasn't because of the LGBTQ flag. I think a lot of people think <laughs> that, but no, it's not actually. So I, I started color coding um, in elementary school because I struggled a lot in academics. It was really, it was really hard on me. And so um, I'm a visual learner. And so for me to learn, I need to see something that's visually aesthetically pleasing for me. If not, I don't understand what I'm reading or what I'm writing about. And so for me, I thought, okay, in college, I color coded everything. I was able to pass my classes through that way. I'm going to translate the work I do into my work now in social media and see how that does for me. Because at the same time, I wanted to learn more about these topics, not just traditionally on academics. And so when I strayed away from academics on that side and more on social media, I learned so much more from people who traditionally don't come from academia and they don't need academia for their environmental education. And so part of that really helped me because now people were very, happy to learn about these topics instead of being confused or like, what do I do? And so in most traditional class settings, a lot of people are afraid to ask questions in lectures. I was afraid to ask questions. And so I opened my community for that reason to ask questions and not to feel embarrassed because at the end of the day, I'm not smart. I'm, I I'm still learning every day. And so I tell people this is more of a circle of learning, not a, me being a teacher and me telling you what you should do. That's also very inspiring. I'm, I'm literally, you know, with the things that you're saying, because the, the, the way you, you speak about what you built, like as a community that you're co-learning, this is, this is amazing. What is, what is the feedback you get from your community? What is uh, a thing that you learned from your community recently and you're very inspired by? Yeah, I think what I've learned a lot with my community is that everyone's interested to a variety of topics and not necessarily saying that one person needs to be you know, some people, different sectors of people follow me from like zero waste, veganism, 
sustainable fashion, um, ecology. There's so much different multitudes of individuals that I've met and seeing their perspectives or what you would say their expertise or love for that passion of that subject has reflected in the way that they interact with me. So me being an environmental scientist, learning more of a holistic view of environmental science, I'm not necessarily good at certain sectors or really good at anything. I would say I'm more versatile in the way that I want to learn. And so part of the pros about being versatile is that you love learning about everything of those aspects. And so when I communicate with them, they communicate with me. It's authentic relationships that we build. And so I'm more in the sense of like wanting to learn more about them than me, than them wanting to learn about myself. And so that's how I think we develop relationships in my community because we believe in open collaboration, but also DMs are always open for me. I've never shunned anyone away or if they have questions, I'm like, let's talk a bit. And so I think that's what I think brings people more into the community is that they want to learn more. But also, I don't know all the answers. And so that's something that I tell people that I don't know everything. Uh, that's, that's very powerful to admit. And that's also very nice because nobody holds all the answers. And that's why we need communities to learn from each other. And speaking about the community, um, I know that you're also a member of the Council of Intersectional Environmentalists, which is like a new platform. Um, it's something that is just buzzing right now and we would love to know more about. Would you share with us how, how this platform came to be, what it means, and what are the people working for it doing right now? Yeah, so Leah Thomas created um, Intersectional Environmentalism that looked into advocating for the people on the planet. So most traditionally in the West, the way we learn about environmentalism or environmental movements are stemmed in conservation in which they silo nature and humans. And so not necessarily saying conservation is only a bad thing, but when we forget to include marginalized voices of people who have been affected by environmental injustices, we are creating a disservice to all of these communities that have practiced environmentalism for decades. And so when we're erasing that type of knowledge, this is why it's reflected of why we're in the climate crisis today. And so Leah created this amazing platform, um, i.e. with um, Deandra, um, Phil, and Sabs, which are all co-founders of creating this platform in which they're able to create community, but also work with corporations or brands, I would say, or organizations to build accountability programs to see them continue building because at the end of the day we can't unfortunately we can't always assume like we know um, to shut down a corporation will end everything in certain senses for change and so you need to do it in a slow change in which it trends it transforms itself and so that's what they're working on as a council member myself what we do is we represent i.e. in the sense of like, we want to talk about mentorship programs, leadership programs, educational programs. How do we continue building that gap or building that bridge between people? And so for me, being part of the council, I'm really thankful and really privileged to even have the opportunity to be invited is that we want to continue working on this form as a community and not just these are the people you should be following, but instead, how do we collectively continue this conversation and move towards out of environmentalists online to environmentalists who don't have the social media that are doing activism work too and also need the resources, need the support out there in the front lines. And so how do I continue to um, contribute to that movement? Okay, this is super interesting. Um, and may 
because we want to approach it as I've read about Leah Thomas and she said that some interview that I cannot recall that um, she wishes that at some point we should don't need the word intersectional before environmentalism mm -hmm. because environmentalism should always and uh, forever be intersectional and should not be considered otherwise. Yeah. So let's say that we have it as a given and that intersectional environmentalism is the environmentalism we all know. Uh, what changes do you see um, that can happen through through people thinking this way, people working with governments, people working with uh, media, people working with um, um, in the industry, what changes can, can a person do to start living and breathing the, the vision of intersectional environmentalism in their own work? Yeah, I think, you know, what starts for me personally, like what starts is like your own interest and your own passions to do that work. And so, you know, if, in, if environmentalism meant intersectionality already for many people, what that would look like to me is ensuring that corporations, in the sense, created more regenerative practices in their own products. And so, you know, most of us are consumers, right? We all contribute to forms of capitalism and such as, you know, I can't say like I'm ethical anti-capitalist because I still contribute in some ways my phone, my, you know, what I buy. And so I tell people, in the world that is included in intersectionality with environmentalism, that looks like, you know, having marginalized groups being actually represented in these conversations, them being paid for their work, having land restoration back to indigenous communities. And so with environmentalism, if we lived in this world, we can reimagine how our society would look like instead of having all of these corrupt people in power continuously um, degrading the earth and people, then we wouldn't be here. And so, I tell people, this is more conceptually, is to dream of what that would look like because similar to the concept of um, what recently what I saw on Instagram on a post said like, um, what if there was no men for 24 hours? What would you do? That was a question asked to um, femmes or non-binaries. Um, you know, what would you do? And so it's really interesting because you see these different perspectives of what would actually happen if this existed. And so... I only tell people that I would wish, in my sense, I see a future where people don't need to survive, um, struggle to survive, and instead it's equitable and just for people. But that's like my view. Okay. No, I mean that's that's a very no. This shouldn't be just your view. This this should be the way we all think that people shouldn't just survive. They should they should thrive, and we should all thrive because yeah. this this is this is the meaning of life, right? Yeah. Um, so right now we are all living in this very in this era that a lot of people saying that the old normal is dead, the new normal is coming. Some people are requesting for the old normal to come back, and all of this discussion around normal and what is normal and what is not. So COVID changed our lives a lot, especially it impacted the West a lot. So for once, we paid attention to to it a lot. Um, so what would you say to all these um, discussions that are being happening around building back better and building back from COVID and building a green future? How would you see the generation, your generation, the generation that uh, and the creators that are discussing about intersectional environmentalism and the young people being involved with the idea of bringing all the social justice and all of these issues about gender, race, identity in the discussions about building back better? How would you imagine that we can build back better from, from COVID? 
Yeah. Um, you know, for, for myself, I think, you know, building normal in the sense of normal, we didn't really know what it was. And so many environmentalists have agreed, like the system that was designed wasn't broken. That's many people have said that. And that's true. It was designed to already hurt people of color. And so, you know, this is such a deep question, but um, I think when we continue to do intersectional environmentalism work, Sorry, can you repeat the question again? Sorry, it was just so long that I forgot. I lost my moment. No, no, of course, of course. So all these discussions about building back yeah. better and building back to the normal, how, how can you imagine the young people, your generation, the, the people that you work with in the inter, in, with uh, intersectional environmentalism or environmentalists in general, what, what do you see their position in this building back better be? Yeah, I think it starts from building from multi-generational knowledge and ancestral knowledge and indigenous wisdom. And so necessarily when we focus on one generation being the key to the future, it's sometimes dangerous. Because I also had to unlearn that, that why do we put um, the future into younger generations? We keep doing this, like, oh, the younger generation will do this, the younger generation will do this. And then they get older and then they're like, the younger generation will do that. And so we need a a co coalition of groups that have been doing this work and intergenerational work that we can continue relying on uh, through a circular dialogue, circular lifestyle, instead of having us to be, okay, I'm trying to do this, but I don't know if I can do this as I get older. So pass it down to this person and be like, good luck, I'm out. But instead we continue these conversations to do that. And so for me, being an educator, I don't, act, I don't identify myself as an activist, but I tell people that if we're able to protect frontline activists that are doing the type of work, um, we can continue moving this build this building momentum because we need all different types of environments. We need activists, we need educators, we need influencers, we need um, other advocates, all of these other folks. But it's also important that we never decenter um, activists or people who have been doing this work for decades um, out of erasure. And so part of me being an educator is saying myself is, how can I empower myself and others around me with tools that would give them the ability to choose what they would want to do and move forward in the movements? And so as we continue to build from this post-COVID world, I have seen an increase of people realizing that this essentially world that we live in was never normal. And so they're kind of in shock right now of how to process these things. And it's a privilege to even be able to pause and be like, wow, my life is actually real like this is actually something real and so when you move point when you move past from that point of shock or terror then you need to decide yourself like what type of life you want to live because at the end of the day you need to come into terms that the life you lived before is never going to come back again and so many people i think attach themselves to this non-realistic um, lifestyle that was never sustainable and so now they're more interested in learning about these social justices that they're being exposed to so much that then they're becoming more shocked and so I think tell people to do one thing at a time instead of learning everything because then you're not going to be able to process these emotions you're going to shut down you're going to tell yourself you can't do this and so I tell people take it one step at a time but also realize that people have been doing this work for decades and they didn't really have time to think or to um, pause and think, what do I do is more like I have to do it now. Okay. Yeah, I think this one step at a time is really important. The past few months have been overwhelming, but as you said, 
it's kind of a privilege to say that the past few months have been overwhelming because for some people this overwhelming mm -hmm. situation has been the reality for, for years. Um, so if there is a person that was um, never involved in anything, any movement, was never involved in anything about the environmentalism, could even be a climate denier or a denier of the fact that a lot of our, our environmental injustices are interconnected with a lot of social injustices. How would you approach this person in your life? How uh, would you advise our audience to sit down and maybe talk with their, the, the weird uncle that behaves that way or the friend that still denies climate change or the friend that still denies social injustices? What's, what's the discussion, what's the advice you would have for this person to approach these other individual in their life. Yeah, I, I think anyone, myself too, having to work towards being what you would say an active ally, myself to my own family, is it having these uncomfortable conversations. And so the reason, like my parents from, are from Mexico. And so growing up in the United States, we have that cultural barrier where they grew up in a different country than me growing up. And so we've challenged them. Me and brother, my sister, we have had these tough conversations with them and it takes sometimes years to get through them. It really does. It doesn't happen in one day. But I think if you continue to persevere through a lens of love, but also criticalness, it would provide them to be like, you know, we, we didn't scream at my parents being like, you're doing this wrong, but be like, question them. Like, why do you think this way? Where does that stem from? Why do you think about this? And so I think many people, you know, good, good example of this is like, you know, uh, climate refugees, where people are like, I don't want these immigrants. But then, you know, um, I've seen it within Mexico, where people are like, I don't want people from Central America coming to Mexico. But it's like, but then you're criticizing the United States for saying they don't want Mexicans, but then you're doing the same thing. So, you know, for me, as, as a humanitarian, I'm like, I believe no one should ever be deemed as this person who is undocumented and any being should have the right to live anywhere safe that is provided by them and not be affected by these, um, you know, forces that have disrupted their own countries. And so start having these conversations with love in a sense to see how that works. I would never tell someone to go um, talk to someone violently or if they, you think they're going to go violent on you, don't do it because I wouldn't want to risk someone's life over having a conversation but maybe start introducing things slowly about like, oh, like, did you read this article? Or like, oh, what do you think about this? The more and more you have these conversations, the more and more it'll be registered in their head that you're passionate about this issue, that they're gonna continue asking these types of questions. And so maybe finding people who are related to these types of anti-ideologies or anti-racist, um, you know, like anti-immigration ideologies or whatever you think, that used to believe in this and then change. And I think that showing them people who have experienced this type of like negligence of like climate deniers and now they believe it, um, is a really good way. And then also there's a, I forgot the organization's name, but climate change and religion. I know a lot of religions talk about, some of them now are talking about climate change. And so if you're able to angle it through a certain perspective of your life of what they believe in, um, it would, it's more likely that they're willing to change, but it takes time, but it's also, it's up to them of how you want to do it. And so I think for me, you know, for us, it was just constantly tagging them in different things on social media, um, liking them pages on their accounts without letting them know to get them exposed <laughs> to injustices. And so eventually they're like, aren't aware of these things. And so 
I think that it's one of the toughest conversations people need to have, but it's the great first step to start because many people are like, oh, how do I become this person anti-racist or how do I help? It's like, go start with your family first because most often not our families in some ways have problematic behaviors. And unfortunately it is true. Yeah, no, that's, that's very fair. I think, I think what you said about that this cannot happen overnight because also at least to speak from my experience, I'm not the person I am today overnight. Uh, I went through different steps. I went through different ideas and I gradually accepted in my environmentalism the fact that for whom am I going to save the environment if it's not for humans and if it's mm -hmm. not for the people um, on this planet. And that's, that's lovely to hear. Um, so I have, I have two more questions for you. Uh, the first one lies within, um, we're, ha we're having an upcoming event. Um, it's uh, GLF Biodiversity that is coming up this October. And when we were brainstorming on what we were going to focus on, is uh, we decided that we can't, we can't miss on the momentum of, of combining biodiversity and health and show to people that when we are talking about restoring the planet and restoring our ecosystems, it basically means that we are doing it to, to restore and reclaim our health and our right to live and the right of every person on this planet to self-determination about food, about health, about housing, about all of their choices. So you're a vegan, uh, as your title says and as your Instagram says, um, which for a lot of people is a very um, sustainable diet. Other people say that it's not something everybody can do. Other people dispute it and say veganism is just a privilege. Um, do you think when it comes to, to biodiversity, when it comes to, to our health, veganism or, or any other type of diet, um, mainly veganism though, is it... Is it important? Is it something that everybody should jump in? What's, how do you approach veganism as an intersectional environmentalism? Yeah, I think for me as a vegan, I, I believe the fact that everyone should have the knowledge or the right to know where their food comes from, and that's it. I don't judge people if they eat meat, if they choose dairy in that sense. I tell people, though, that the industries that perpetuate animal abuse and human abuse in these industries are products of colonialism that have stemmed globally. And so my issue with these industries is that they're not only destructive for the environment, they're hurting animals and ecosystems and they're destroying communities nearby. And so when we talk about more now, I'm, I say I'm an ethical vegan because vegan in the vegan movement, some people only focus on animal liberation and think that's the only way and they don't include or intersect race or any other things because they say that doesn't matter. But for me as an intersectional vegan too and an ethical vegan, I believe that I fight for the liberation of animals and humans. And so part of that is recognizing that in different varieties of cultures, they use meat in some forms of ways and there's been some forms of their culture, some haven't and I understand that, but I don't, I'm not going to critique people who in their own communities have harvested meat or uh, whatever forms of meat that they've gotten from their farms or whatever they've done, um, critique them for what they do. I think, too, the dangers of veganism is that people believe that it's the future. And if we all convert to veganism, we'll fix the planet. It will substantially really help the country, definitely, like globally. But it will not fix the issue with our capitalistic society that is continuously destroying ecosystems. Most recently, as you know, Oatly, 
that was known to have contributors to back Blackstone um, that destroys the Amazon. They, you know, a lot of vegans defended this non-human logo saying that it's better than other meat industries, but they're just the same in the sense of the forms of veganism to me means that there is no ethical conception under capitalism and that too, that there, that no one, no human, no ecosystem should ever be exploited. And so I think the term about veganism is that many people uh, don't have access to food either in certain ways. They do have access to liquor stores, but maybe it's not healthy produce. And so readdressing the ways of like, it's a race and class um, systemic issue that has happened for prolonged decades of years of like, who has access to land, who has access to even farm, who has access to go get transportation, um, who has access to even clean air or clean soil to, and water to water their plants. It all comes to this global issue that has happened. And so I do believe that in the sense it may, it does consider a slightly privileged lifestyle, but also it is, accessible in the way I live for I don't I understand each environment is unique and that's why I don't tell people to go vegan I tell them just to know where their food comes from and how these industries stem from colonialism and that's it it's up to them if they want to eat it but I continue to advocate too for food justice food sovereignty understanding that these important topics need to go into the veganism movement not just animal liberation um, not to say I'm straying away from animal liberation, but both are so important in this movement. That's that's amazing because that's exactly how we also feel uh, about veganism as a vegan myself. That's it's something we should understand and comprehend that food sovereignty, food safety should be at the forefront of all of these movements because after all, veganism is about compassion towards animals we should also be compassionate towards other humans yeah. um i have a question from the audience that yeah. i see circulating a lot and they seem to really uh bring up the word misinformation in there so how do you as a, as an educator or you said you don't identify as an activist but in your way you're doing an educational activist <laughs> um how do you deal with with misinformation how how do we deal with misinformation in this era of very fast ideas that everybody has data, everybody has numbers? How do you deal with that? I think it's depending where your resources come from. Like as an educator, you know, growing up in university and when I went to get my degree, it's like you need to cite your resources wherever you go, unfortunately, because then you don't want to say something that's not real. And then you're like, what does this mean? And so for me, where I usually get some of my resources as news articles, but also I have access to university proxy servers to get those research articles and dis dissect them for more accurate information because news articles, of course, are really great sources and more accessible than research papers and they cost money for research papers. And so with research papers, you get that exact data that you maybe need. But I think when dealing with climate misinformation, it's important to know where the source comes from and who's saying it because there's organizations like the Heartland Institute here in the United States that, um, that hired the anti-Greta, Greta, um, Naomi, I think, the 17-year-old that denounced Greta saying that she's fake and that climate realism um, in the sense is it's normal for the, the degrees to be increasing in the, in the planet. And so I think the most important thing to know is that people who even come from academia. Um, the Harland Institute hires professors from Ivy Leagues to be climate realists. These are scientists, actual scientists, who have done science work in the field that say this is not true and it's normal. 
And so when you look at this information, you not only need to incorporate science, statistical data, but historical events, because with historical events, we're erasing so much part of environmental destruction that happens that we don't necessarily know what the outcomes are. And so many, when I have to debate these researchers or people who actually come from these STEM backgrounds, it's difficult because they don't use more of logic than emotion and historical events to justify their actions. As researchers, I understand that point, but it's also dangerous because we're further dividing the movement in that sense. And many people who donate to these organizations are also corporations that are big in tech that believe in climate change, but yet fund these corporations for some weird reason. And so I think for me, it's like debunking them and questioning their work because they've questioned my work. And so I questioned them too. And so I, because I had the privilege to come from academia, I can use that against them too and critique them too, but it's very also draining. So I tell people to deal with that. And then there's the other one with the climate change deniers where people are like, don't want to believe it. And so that takes time with family. And until I think they experience it in front of their eyes and then they realize that it's actually true. So I think it's very sad, but it's something that there's two parties in this. One is from researchers, the other one is from people who just don't want to do the work to learn about it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very fair, but it's still very important to find ways to reach to those people because if we are to move forward, we need to kind of move all together. So uh, we're almost close to the end, but I would really, uh, as I am very, very inspired and humbled by all of your words so far, I would really like to hear from you a message that you would have for everyone that identifies as a global leader. It can be actually a politician or it can be somebody that owns a company or even a person that considers themselves a leader in their community um, that want to bring positive change, what, what your message would be for them? How, how would you like to, to address them? Yeah, I think it's just asking yourself, what environmental values did you grow up with? Every, every individual has environmental values. Whether your parents were low income or you had middle class or high class, like your parents instilled some type of values in you. Like mine were survival and recycling. It was in uh, reusing things. And so I ask people, if you're able to build upon those values as you've gotten older, ask yourself, how do you want to build those that foundation for younger people and older people to continue using? And so I think it starts with asking yourself where you grew up with and like what you had and what and reimagining what if that didn't exist? And so then if you think about it in that retro, in that retro sense, like, oh, wow, I, I can't imagine if that if the whole trees on my block were gone. Like, what if another community has that now? And so thinking about where that stems from. And then as you continue to get older, ask yourself like what you want to create for others around you. Unfortunately, of course, capitalism is something that many people are focused on, extractive wealth. And so asking yourself, is this really worth it for yourself and for your own future? Like, would you be able to look at your own child or your own um, brother or daughter or your brother or sister's um, cousin's like child and be like, oh, I contributed to the destruction of your home. I don't think you can ever look at a child and tell them that or even look at an older person and be like, yes, I destroyed your environment and now you're probably going to die because or get harmed because of the climate crisis. And um, elderly people or people who are disabled are going to face the most consequences when trying to leave climate um, injustices. 
Thank you. This is such a powerful message. Just to connect with your roots and remember how you grew up as a child. This is this is this is very powerful, Isaias. I'm very, very, very grateful for our chat, our short chat today. Mm -hmm. um, I hope you also enjoyed your time with the Global Landscape Forum. You're now part of our family and um, I'm, I'm deeply inspired by you and I expect of you many, many big things while I continue following you around and yeah. your little colorful boxes. <laughs> Yay, thank you so much again. And thank you everyone for tuning in and just listening to our conversation. I think we're all learning in this journey and so we'll never stop here. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. And thank you for everyone for tuning in. Uh, Go find Isaias if you want to learn more about his work and the amazing work that he is putting on his educational material on Queer Brown Vegan here on Instagram. And we'll speak uh, soon again and take care. We hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Stay tuned for next week's episode, where we'll be revisiting the topic of climate justice with another one of our favorite young activists. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Stitcher, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.